If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Scripture lesson this morning comes from 1 Samuel, the first chapter, verses 4 through 20. On the day when Eklana sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife, Paniah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you've made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate, and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, 
I have asked him of the Lord. Here ends this reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Over the last month, Robin and I have preached out of texts that tell of profound suffering. Job and the loss of his 10 children, his health and all his worldly possessions. Then Ruth and Naomi, migrant widowed women in a land of famine. And next, the poor widow and her two tiny coins who throws into the treasury what the text calls her whole life. And this morning, we add Hannah. We recognize Hannah's story. It is similar to more than a handful of other women in the Hebrew scriptures. She joins the mothers of our faith, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, in the sisterhood of infertility. And this is often the only thing for which they are remembered, even though there are plenty of other things by which to define them. Hannah is a second wife and childless, and she wears her grief on her sleeve. But Hannah's suffering is more complicated, more profound than the surface of the story suggests, as is true for the other women whose biblical stories center around childlessness. In ancient patriarchal society, children were major financial assets. They provided labor from an early age, ensured the continuation of the family name, and guaranteed possession of the patriarchal estate. Sons were particularly important because of patrilineal inheritance. Sons inherited first, and daughters only so, if there were no sons. And even if there were no sons and the daughter did inherit, that inheritance became her husband's as soon as they married. Widows and orphaned daughters had little to no economic opportunity and thus little to no economic security. Bearing a child, a male child, was not simply about wanting a baby, but about survival. Hannah is enmeshed in an unjust system that leaves her economically vulnerable. Without a son, if her husband died, Hannah would be left to the charity of her sister wife, Penina, who had multiple sons and daughters, and who was not just worried about her own self and her own children, but also jealous of Hannah as the most loved wife. Things will not go well if Hannah is forced to depend on Penina. To make matters worse, Hannah's husband does not get it, asking her, am I not more to you than 10 sons? Clearly not seeing the whole picture. <laughs> Hannah's answer is not recorded, but it might well have been, you're one tray of baklava short of a heart attack, sweetie. And this puts me in a bit of a situation. Since barrenness was considered a source of disgrace and divine judgment in the ancient world, and it was always assumed that the problem was with the woman, Hannah also lived under a cloud of shame. Those around her wondered what she had done to deserve such punishment, an attitude that still exists today. We do not publicly speak of infertility or miscarriage very often, and not only because it is a deeply private matter, we still wonder, especially women, if we've done something wrong or if we are being punished. This is true for men too, although their worth is left often tied to whether or not they are a parent. More often than not, infertility is a silent and isolated journey of grief, 
even when made as a couple. While we have turned Hannah's words, for this child I have prayed and God has provided, into a highly profitable 8 by 10 print, suitable for framing and hanging in nurseries, earnest pleading with God does not automatically get you what you want. This is not how fertility or prayer works. But, but it is how it works in this text. Hannah, distraught and grieving, goes to the sanctuary at Shiloh on her own to plead with God. Hannah prostrates herself, making a spectacle. She is unruly in her cry against injustice. And for this, she is humiliated when the priest Eli assumes the worst. How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Sober up! But once she explains herself, Eli listens and tells her to go in peace, sending her away with a blessing. God is then said to remember Hannah. She conceives a son and she names him Samuel. But the context of this scripture is imperative to understanding the text. The author does not tell us Hannah's story because he is particularly interested in Hannah getting a baby. No, 1 Samuel is an, an imaginative narrative of the transformation of Israel from unstable tribes to a centralized monarchy. This is about identity as the people of God and the beginning of Israel. Women's roles in biblical stories of beginnings are largely used for illustration if God can make a barren woman conceive, so will God bless Israel, and they will prosper as a people. Written much later in time than the events it describes, 1 Samuel reassures a people in exile that God will make a way, and offers reminder after reminder of times past when no one could remember how to say the word hope, much less have any, and yet God still showed up. As we often say around here, hold that thought. Late last week, I was invited by Alia Shimi, who is the executive director of Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry, to go with a small contingency from Tulsa to join a group called Let Our Families Go on a multi-faith pilgrimage to the tent prisons in Tornillo, Texas, as a movement of witness and service. Let Our Families Go was started by a couple of millennial rabbis named Josh and Miriam, of course, in response to the crisis of family separation at the border. The trip started out like a bad joke. You know the kind, two Christians, a Muslim, and a Jew walk into a bar. We did go into a restaurant called The Hoppy Monk, but that's because the boys like uh, craft beer. But anyway. The Oklahoma Posse consisted of Reverend Chris Moore of Fellowship UCC, Alia Shimi, the first Muslim woman to serve as executive director of TMM, myself, and Jesse Ulrich, director of Holocaust education at the Jewish, Tulsa Jewish Federation. We drove all day on Wednesday, and there is nothing quite like driving through West Texas to deepen one's appreciation for being an Oklahoman. We made it there just in time for the training session along with roughly 60 other people from all over the United States. The majority of participants were Jewish, all deeply disturbed by the idea that the United States is denying asylum to people fleeing violence, persecution, and crushing poverty 
because Jews know all too well the consequences of being denied refuge. Our mission was to bear witness to what's going on down there and to do what we could to relieve the people who are on the ground in El Paso, caring for the basic needs of those who are let in through what we might imagine as the side gate of the United States. We began the day at a historic neighborhood park in El Paso to hear from city officials and activists who are trying to care for migrants who make it across and those who are awaiting a hearing. The park where we gathered has been slowly intruded upon by the border wall itself. Right now it is a con concrete base with a chain link fence atop, but under the guise of fence repair, it is set to be replaced by 30 foot high poles placed close together to restrict entry, but allow people on either side to see through. Customs and Border Patrol knew our interfaith group was coming, so they sent a hospitality helicopter to circle over our group. This is standard CBP intimidation practice. Something similar happened when I went to the border in seminary. As we fill, refilled water tanks in the desert with the help of a group dedicated to stopping deaths of migrants in the desert, no mas muertes, the CBP drove around us in four-wheelers with what looked like AR-15s strapped to their backs for no apparent reason other than to scare us. Hope Border Institute, an organization that documents violations of the rights and dignity of migrants and asylum seekers because our government does not, has issued two alarming reports on the situation in El Paso based on mixed methodology in-depth interviews with legal representatives of, of asylum seekers combined with observations made in El Paso's immigration courts. Among their findings is that on any given night in the El Paso sector, 2,000 human beings are incarcerated in detention centers where conditions are often inhumane, food and water are restricted, medical care is inadequate, access to counsel is hampered, and where migrants are punitively bounced back and forth hundreds of miles between detention centers. El Paso is one of the harshest places to receive justice in immigration courts, where judges rule against Mexican and Central American asylum seekers nearly 100% of the time. Only about 2% of petitioners from Mexico and Central America are granted asylum. We know that this is no accident. As I outlined in a sermon almost a year ago, our immigration system is built on racism. White people in, brown people out, especially poor brown people. Next, we went to the Santa Fe Bridge, a pedestrian port of entry that connects El Paso and the Mexican city of Juarez. Hundreds of Central American parents and children camp out each night on the bridge, waiting for a chance to apply for asylum at this port of entry. A week before we arrived, migrants on the bridge were removed because it made for bad optics, both for Mexico and for the United States. Thousands of them are in overcrowded shelters in Juarez with no idea how long the wait will be, except that it will be a long wait. By late Thursday morning, we were on our way to Tornillo, a 45-minute drive outside of El Paso. This is another official border crossing, 
but also the site of the tent prisons where our government keeps children who have been forcibly separated from their parents at the border, along with other minors fleeing on their own. It is not an accident this location was chosen. It is far enough and remote enough to be just out of sight and out of mind, or so our government hopes. We held a prayer vigil similar to the one we have here every week with song and theological response. There is insufficient infrastructure to support proper living conditions in Tornillo in those tents. Multiple trucks hauling potable water, potable water, drove through the gates in the hour we were there. This is what they use to shower, cook, and wash dishes in. The children are given bottled water to drink. Ice brings in the children using charter buses with blacked out windows, which is as disturbing to see as it sounds. As we say each week at our vigil, this is not the work of a decent government or a righteous country. The rest of Thursday was spent assisting folks on the ground in El Paso. Annunciation House is an organization that provides hospitality to reunited families that were detained and separated by ICE. In El Paso, ICE releases about 2,100 people per week to Annunciation House. They sent us to deliver clean towels to various shelters around the city, mostly at churches and synagogues and temples. In just one location, we dropped off over 500 towels. In another, only 36 towels, but the church lady running the meal that evening cried at the sight of us, so grateful for 36 clean towels. Think about that. Tears over 36 clean towels. The fellowship halls of these churches, synagogues, and temples held rows and rows of cots. And by our count, there were not enough cots for the number of people who needed a place to lay their head. I really wish this story had a happy ending like the one so often presented in 1 Samuel. I wish I could just say that just like Hannah got a baby, we saw some kind of justice at the border. But I can't. Today, more people will show up on the Santa Fe Bridge in El Paso and ask us for refuge. And we will deny them refuge, deny a vast majority of them. But they will persist, and more migrants will keep coming, because as one 22-year-old mother told us, living on a bridge is better than being murdered in our beds. Like many of you, I have been sitting with the question, now what? Now what? What do we do? This is what the two Christians, the Jew and the Muslim, talked about as we drove those long, desolate miles back home. How, how do we make this right? Our people want to know next steps. What do we tell them? So this morning I turn us back to the stories of our tradition, Hannah's story which seems to be about a woman who wants a baby, but is really much more than that. Put into context, the story is about being trapped in an unjust system, 
of being accused of wrongdoing, even when one does everything right, like showing up at a port of entry to ask for asylum and then being called invaders. It is a story of being willing to cry out against injustice in such a way that we create a spectacle, that we are accused of being drunk and unruly, if that's what it takes to get the message across. Hannah's story is about what kind of world we should be working to build, a world God is calling us towards, which we hear in Hannah's song, recorded in the second chapter of 1 Samuel. Hannah's song begins, my heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in my God, and culminates in verse eight, the Lord raises up the poor from the dust, the Lord lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. It's a seemingly strange prayer of thanks from a new mother, but of course, this is not a prayer of thanks from a new mother. This is a song of revolution, where the boughs of the mighty are broken and the poor are raised from the dust. In this song, the world's expectations of the same old, same old are upended, and the world itself is turned upside down. The hungry are fed, and the rich are made to work for their bread. So if we believe that this story is true, if we believe that God breaks the bowels of the mighty and girds the feeble with strength, if we believe God raises up the poor from the dust and lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them inherit a seat of honor, then we will keep working because we also believe that we are the hands and feet of God. Or as St. Augustine said, without God, we cannot Without us, God will not. There is no quick fix to offer here, only a call for prayer and lament coupled with steady, faithful attention to charity and to justice and encouragement to hold fast to hope even when we cannot remember how to say the word, much less have any, to trust that God will show up, just like Hannah. Our promise to the migrants and to those caring for them in El Paso was this. Estamos trabajando por ustedes. We are working for you. Estamos trabajando por ustedes. We are working for you. Annunciation House Hope Border Institute, and all those seeking refuge. Estamos trabajando por ustedes. We are working for you. So friends, let us not grow weary. Our beloveds at the border are counting on us. So is God. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Laurie Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.